Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Pondering Politics. This is our second monthly roundup and it's been, for the shortest month of the year, it's been quite a, quite a, uh, a busy month, let's say. Um, but before we do that, I'd like to first thank everyone for their support and, um, uh, and words of kindness over our first ever interview with Zach Polanski last week. Of course, I wasn't involved in that. Um, it was obviously my three wonderful co-hosts, but we've had some great reception on that. And at the end of this episode, um, we will most likely be revealing who our next uh, interview is. Aaron is shaking his head at me. No, we're not. Oh, I don't think I'm allowed it's, it's, to. It's, it's unconfirmed. It, well, we, we've got an agreement. It's just working out the details. So we'll yeah, see what work, happens. Working out the details. So hopefully we'll, we will have another interview this month. So... Um, we we shall see. So uh, hopefully we can all look forward to that. Um, um but um yeah, so just thank you for that. Thank you for all the spots so far. It's going very well. Uh we're getting constant viewing numbers, so that's really good and encouraging. Um and you know it's it's something to keep going. I think I think the fact that we've managed to reach four episodes consecutively is like a pretty good, pretty good standard for a new podcast. Uh you know, it's like a it's like a business. You survive the first year, and yeah, you got to go then. Um, anyway, so we shall jump into the stuff that has happened this month. Um, there is obviously one big news story that we need to talk about. Um, you know, um, sort of some people expected it, some people didn't, and that is the Labour hold in Birmingham, Ed- Ed- Edrington, Edrington. I don't know if I'm saying I didn't really find obviously Aaron is our statistics uh constituency man. Um obviously he and Zoe, along with uh, their other friend host Twitter spaces, which some of you who are listeners may have joined at some point. They they always do by-election Twitter spaces, um, which are very good, uh, a good way to communicate with others and usually quite an open. An accepting place for uh, discussion on politics. So I'll let, I'll let, but um, enough uh, bigging them up. Uh, I'll let Aaron talk us through what happened in Birmingham. Well, I mean, you you say that people kind of didn't see Labour. Uh, it was it was kind of hit or miss between people seeing Labour to win. I think everyone really, especially with the current poll, saw Labour uh, just winning by quite a lot. Um, obviously, it's a nineteen percent majority, which is in line with my prediction. Uh, on the night, so win for me, three for three. Um, you know, the Conservatives, I think, did better than they expected. Uh, you know, when we were kind of talking on the night of what people kind of saw as a good result for the Conservatives, a lot of people said, you know, getting above 30, getting, you know, above 32%, they end up getting 36.3%, which I think, you know, is is, is pretty damn good considering the current numbers looking uh, Labour, you know, everyone also said that get, they had to get above 55%, which they did. So I think both parties will be relatively happy. Uh, in terms of raw vote, obviously, there was a much uh, less turnout. Uh, so the majority in terms of raw vote has actually decreased um, from around 3,200, uh, 300 to around 3,100. So, I mean, it, it, it's marginal, but I, I don't really think either of the main parties are looking at this too yeah, uh, disgruntledly. Um, 
Lib Dems had their worst result in a by-election since 2012 or 2013, I believe, which, I mean, they, they got like 200, around 250 votes. So it's not really good for them, but I don't think they were campaigning there. And there's, you know, the common thing that's happening where the Liberal Democrats uh, will kind of like not campaign when it's Labour's seat to win and... For the most part, it's been vice versa. Though obviously, there was debate within North Shropshire specifically over that. But uh, Tusk, with their former MP, got two percent, which has got them into third. And surprisingly, Reform UK underperformed again. So um, yeah, there we go. Why is it you think uh, Reform UK under underperformed then? Well, I mean, when we uh, you mentioned the Twitter spaces that we that we do, and the first one we did, which is for Old Bexley and Sidcup, people were predicting that they would get around fifteen percent, but they don't have any infrastructure really. They the the main basis of why Brexit Party did so well was because it was the Brexit Party for Brexit, and I don't think anyone really voted for them for any other reason. And so when that reason goes, people aren't looking for them as a party that they, you know, are willing to support based on other reasons. And I think that in some places like Harleypool in 2019 election, people kind of took that for granted. And and obviously they massively bond in the by-election there. Um, But I just don't think anyone really looks at them as as really a, a credible party. Um, you know, people said that the reason why they didn't do so well in Hartlepool was because Tice didn't stand and then Tice stood in Old Bexley and they um, struggled massively. Not, I think that they, they still view the country in a historical context when it's... Think about the politics of the last 10 years and how much it's evolved. And I don't really think that many people are looking to their style of politics as, as the way forward. It's also, um, it's, I mean, the way I put it is the same as sort of UKIP. Um, it's sort of a, the whole, the whole, one of the, 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 what am I trying to say? One of the, one of the drawing factors of reform or the Brexit party of UKIP was Nigel Farage. And obviously he's not in charge. He's not, he's not fronting these parties anymore. And you sort of UKIP, they sort of dwindled. You've seen it with sort of reform UK, with sort of, Without Farage, there's, there seems to be a, a less um, willing sort of people to vote for them. So there's sort of... Because um, obviously there are people who obviously vote for parties because of their leaders. There were, um, obviously, some people didn't vote for 2019, for example. Some people didn't vote Labour because of Corbyn. Some people voted uh, Conservative because of Boris. And so sort of... Without sort of that charismatic leader at the front or someone who they know and can rally behind, there doesn't seem to be really that draw. Well, uh, I mean, what what I would actually like to say on this is that you know, over the last few by elections, I've been trying to you know get in contact with various different members of of each parties, which has had its trials and tribulations. But I will say that lots of people in reform that I've dealt with have been absolutely lovely. But I feel like there's a lot of disconnect between them. I mean, in North Shropshire, one of them said that um, they were thought they were going to get second place behind the Conservatives. Another thought that the Liberal Democrats... And this, this, was, this one was a week before the election. 
one of them said that they didn't think the Liberal Democrats had a chance in winning and were going to come third. I mean, there's clearly a disconnect between what they're polling and what they're saying and what the end up results are, which I think is a part of the reason why they're struggling. Yes. Um, is there anything anyone else would like to say on Birmingham or the, or the state of party politics at the moment, briefly? I mean, it's quite clearly, um, as Aaron was saying, not something that we can really draw many conclusions from in terms of the national picture. You know, both parties will be relatively happy with the result, I think, because obviously, you know, the, uh, the fear for the Conservatives is that party gate or, you know, the mishandling of COVID and, and obviously even the response to Ukraine would be issues that maybe uh, voters would judge the Conservative government on. But there wasn't that much of a shift away from their base there. Um, but for Labour, this is a really strong result. You know, in terms of the proportion, they've almost doubled their majority from about 10% to 19%. So I would suppose Keir Starmer will be quite happy with that. And it suggests that certainly in the heartlands, in places like Birmingham, which um, bear in mind that this seat was actually quite marginal in 2019. I mean, you know, I suspect that part of the reason that Labour even able to hold on was that Jack Jeremy was such a strong local MP with quite a big presence. So it really was a fight to kind of retain what had always been a Labour seat uh, for um, quite a few decades. I'm not sure if it's in the entirety of its existence. I'm sure Aaron can correct me on how long it's been Labour for. But, you know, it's a seat that Labour needed to hold on to and have quite comfortably held on. So it suggests that there's definitely a route forward. But once again, if the Conservative base holds up, the question is, can that be sustained? Uh, if, if it's right, can I just ask both uh, the, the Labourites in this? Stats for Labour kind of brought this up within a debate between the party of um, of comparing this result to, to 2017. Do you guys think there's anything in that? Or is it kind of just like the... The, the left of the party being the left of the party in that sense? Look, if you look at the statistics, the only election you should be comparing it to is the one just before, which is 2019, and Labour have increased their vote share. So, you know, I think it's a slightly strange uh, approach if you're comparing to elections before that, because... I mean, you know, why pick 2017? You may as well, you know, look at others. And um, and I'm aware that Aaron was probably aiming that question towards the uh, some of the others in, in in this group. But I think in terms of certainly what I've perceived from, from the results, you know, it's you can only draw on what's happened in recent times. And it's quite clear that there's been a positive shift for Labour from the last election to this by-election in terms of the vote share. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know enough about it to comment about 2017 because there's a lot that's happened since then. I just wanted to say a minute ago about how turnout is so low that, like, I think I think it came out that turnout almost halved and less people voted in this by-election than voted for Jack Jerome in the 2019 general election. So trying to read anything particularly into this by-election seems quite far-fetched considering how few people actually voted in it it doesn't feel like a fair representation and you know it's always nice for me to see a Labour hold and nice to see think like nice to see what happened happen but 
considering how low turnout was, like reading into some reading into it as some kind of massive mandate for case dam or any kind of these bold statements you see flying around seems a bit far-fetched. I mean, if I may ask, do you not think the fact that a lot of people didn't turn out is in itself a thing we can read from it? Because if not many people are motivated to go out and vote, doesn't that kind of say something? I mean, probably yes, but also this seat is one of the lowest turnout. I'm pretty sure on the space that we did, we had a local democracy report come on and say that this seat doesn't vote. Like, it has one of the lowest turnouts of a number of general elections. So while I agree that there is something you can read into in the fact that the turnout in this by-election was so low, part of it is just the nature of the seat. So it's finding where the balance lies. Okay. Um, we shall move on if that is everything everyone has to say about Birmingham and, and the by-election um, to what is probably on everyone's lips on everyone's lips and minds at the moment. Well, I, don't, I don't, that's not a saying. What's on everyone's minds at the moment, um, which is um, the Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, obviously, I think last episode of this month in politics we talked about the build-up of Russian troops on the border um, I think I remember making the prediction about nuclear war coming, um, luckily we're not there yet um, but uh, you know uh, I hope I'm not right um, but um, obviously the build-up happened and then I February, I want to say the 24th if I've got my dates right, is when Russia invaded the Ukraine. Um, I remember waking up that day and, and, and finally seeing the news, and uh, oh, uh, that was quite a quite an interesting day. Um, obviously, the invasion is not going as well as it could be for Russia. Um, all intelligence suggests they expected to win this in five days. I think it was five, ten days, something like that. They expected the war to be over by now. Um, however. What we have seen is President Zelensky has become something of an international war hero. The Ukrainian people have sort of rallied around him. There are, I think last check, there were 14,000 foreign conscripts have gone to Ukraine to fight uh, and to fight off Russia. At this moment in time, Kiev still stands. Uh, I think they've taken their first major population centre um, along the uh, Black Sea. Um, so that is the army advancing from Ukraine, uh, Crimea, uh, which was obviously invaded in 2014. Um, I am open to take any any comments or or anywhere anyone wants to direct this conversation. First of all, it's it, it, it's important to kind of you know say that should this really be happening. But I think it's important to say first that if if you want to condemn this which you know i'm sure many of us will it's important to make sure you know that you're condemning the government and not the russian people which i feel like some people especially on social media have kind of been taking liberty with if you get what i mean um you know with, with some of the choices that have uh been made it's important to to remember that there is a distinctive difference between the two and the decisions of the government may not be reflected uh, by the people as we've seen with uh, a substantial protest in places like St. Petersburg. 
Uh, absolutely. A lot of people are calling this Putin's war. Um, there seems to be a lot of uh, local opposition to the war. Um, there was the image of, I think, um, a, an older woman in St. Petersburg, I think, who was a, a survivor of, I want to say, World War II. I might be wrong there. Zoe's giving me, I'm getting the thumbs up, I'm getting the nods. Um, she was obviously taken away by police. And recently, Russia has banned Twitter. Um, they've put limits on BBC, Free Press, the only independent broadcasting uh, news agency in Russia uh, recently stopped broadcasting. Um, it is obviously a very uh, difficult situation um, to sort of talk about and address, um, especially as it is ever-evolving. There's a chance when you're hearing this episode, there's been some breaking news. I mean, recently they agreed to a ceasefire which Russia doesn't appear to be adhering, is what Ukrainian sources are saying. And my my theory on the ceasefire was that it wasn't, if it was a ceasefire, it was literally just so they could resupply their troops who are overextended, undersupplied, and pretty much stuck in Ukraine. Um, perhaps, uh, perhaps I should bring uh, in something to talk perhaps that uh, more people can talk about, which is sort of... Um, what British sort of, uh, well, not just British, but sort of Western, uh, Western pol political minds, MPs in Britain, political commentators in the US and stuff, who sort of denied the intelligence from the US and the UK and said this wasn't going to happen. And then it's happened. And then obviously you've got the Stop the War Coalition over here, um, who uh, were backed up by some quite big... Uh, the sort of left 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 wing of the Labour Party, John McDonnell, Jeremy Corbyn, um, although they've been sort of forced to distance themselves after it seems Starmer sort of said to them, if you keep going down this route, I will uh, remove the whip, I imagine. So, uh, yeah. So uh, um, does anyone want to talk about sort of the sort of Western opposition, sort of NATO, blaming NATO, denying intelligence, any any of that sort of stuff? I'll come in on NATO, but I'm not going in on that like bundle of just catastrophe. <laughs> I mean, I'll come in on the fact that Ukraine, in the perhaps the ballsiest move I've ever seen, the Ukrainian parliament met for 10 minutes, I think a couple of days ago, just to vote through numerous bills, numerous things to try and help the resistance against Russia. I saw that and I just wow, like that was insane. Just like there's a new level of ballsy there, like 10 out of 10 for them. Uh, but one of the things they're asking for is a no-fly zone, which, I mean, full disclosure, like, well, a no-fly, it would involve uh, Russian planes being shot down over Ukraine by NATO, which would be nuclear power. Well, if we did it, nuclear power shooting down nuclear power, which would be, you know, only going to end badly but that's kind of what ukraine are asking for at the moment i'm sure if there's any other development someone's going to correct me but that's what ukraine are asking for it's being resisted by the uk for the reasons i've just outlined and that it would probably very easily escalate into nuclear war which jack has alluded to in previous podcasts the wonderful joys of nuclear war uh but i mean yeah that's pretty much all i've got to say they're asking for a no-fly zone but while I understand that they want to protect their own people, because as far as I'm aware, the Russians have 
like dominance in the air over Ukraine. Uh, but like it will just end in NATO uh, shooting down Russian planes over Ukraine. So it's not going to end the best. I think it's interesting, um, just building on what Zoe's saying about the sort of the actual nature of the warfare so far. Um, Ukraine are certainly claiming that they have uh, air superiority, but and, and did actually successfully. Apparently, um, you know, there was a, there was a viral video today of you know their use of I think uh, javelin surface to air missiles or something, and you know, there's been a lot of kind of um, promotion certainly of of the uh, successes. So far, but the reality is the intelligence is just so mixed right now. You've got both sides claiming that they're doing better, and it's very difficult to ascertain what's actually happening. But it definitely does seem that the Ukrainians are holding it off quite well. Um, I think what I find most interesting about this this conflict is the way in which it's challenged a lot of the sort of uh, beliefs in how wars should be done and how international relations theories operate. You know, there's the idea that when everyone became capitalist after the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, there was the McDonald's peace theory, which although was a bit tongue in cheek by Thomas Friedman, who wrote that in the 90s, you know, it was the idea that when you have the sort of consensus of uh, economic interdependence and a sort of global flow of capital, that actually you won't necessarily have wars occurring because it's just too costly. But what we've seen is actually countries going beyond economic pragmatism in this set of um, sanctions, in the way that private corporations have operated, in the way that Russia has has obviously pursued war, which, you know, it doesn't necessarily make economic sense, but you've got a situation where that's, that's what they're pursuing. And then in terms of the actual warfare itself, it really seems that all the West can do, as Zoe was saying, a full no-fly zone would be a catastrophe. It would just start World War Three, basically, which is why no one's pursuing that at the moment. But at the same time, the West is obviously trying to ramp up its support for the Ukrainians. And um, I guess all we can hope for is that there's more effective ways of really limiting Putin's uh, power. And, and who knows? Things are just really fast moving at the moment. It's crazy. Yeah, I think uh, crazy is definitely a, a sort of a way to phrase it. Um, so some, I think um, 70%, 75% of Americans want uh, a no-fly zone implemented over Ukraine, um, which is a stat on that. Um, currently, intelligence also suggests that uh, in terms of air superiority, um, the Russians haven't been able to... Um, established that uh, in Ukraine. Apparently, a lot of the places they bombed, sort of the old air, old airstrips were based on bad intelligence. They were sort of decommissioned, not being used. And, and Ukrainian um, anti-air facilities are quite mobile at the moment. Um, obviously, what, what is playing out sort of online and stuff, especially in the West, is, is, is certainly definitely, uh, while we're not involved in a physical war, we're, we're definitely involved in some sort of propaganda war at the moment, I'd, I'd say. Um, it's fair to say I'm I I've been susceptible to propaganda. Like there are things that I've seen about Ukraine and stuff that probably isn't true, but has, has sort of made my heart sort of uh, ache a little. Or sort of um, there have been many stories coming out of Ukraine of sort of different people. Um, you had the Snake Island garrison um, who 
famously, when asked to surrender by a Russian warship, said, Russian warship, go fuck yourself. Um, at first, they were reported to have been killed, but then I think corrections were made that they fought until they'd run out of ammo, uh, and then they surrendered, um, thankfully saving some uh, needless deaths. Um, you have, um, in sort of uh, more eastern Ukraine, you had a story of an older woman approaching some Russian soldiers and telling them to carry sunflower seeds in their pockets so they can grow when they get when they die. Um, and uh, my favourite one has been the ghost of Kiev, um, who has apparently sadly been shot down if he was real. Um, if he or she was real, they've been sadly shot down, apparently after taking 21 planes down, I think was their last count, which would make them uh, an ace to be all aces. Um, I've definitely read some stuff about Ukraine that sort of made me emotional, made me feel upset, made me feel angry, made me want to do something more. Um, how, has, how, has, how has it affected you all sort of seeing this sort of, um, sort of this um, devastation sort of in Europe especially? Because obviously there's been such a different reaction compared to how we view conflicts in, say, the Middle East and stuff and, 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 and why that is. Uh, if I can come in and talk about the fact that I'm aware, as the only woman on this podcast, it might be a bit weird for me to say this, but I find it scary as f and just like, oh my God, that men between the age of 18 and 60 cannot leave Ukraine. I mean, there's a lot to be said about that, but just, I'm just amazed that that can happen and that, that I just, I'm lacking the words for just the amount of just, I believe in freedom and the fact that they can just say, right, you all have to fight. You have no choice. You cannot leave the country. Yeah, sorry. Uh, but I'm like, the fact that men between the age of 18 and 60 cannot leave Ukraine. I mean, I've got three men between that age sat here with me. But think about all the people, people listening to this in your life between 18 and 60 all being forced to fight a war that they hadn't they didn't choose to be part of just because of where they're from it's wrong but like yeah so i am massively overwhelmed by that and because I, I can't imagine all the men in my life being forced to fight in a war that they didn't choose i think the point that zoe touches there is actually like what really affects me the most it's the way that this is just such a needless conflict that's drawing in so much violence and hurt and it's just, as Zoe said, it's just, you know, at a basic level, this is about humans hurting other humans. And, you know, the way in which men are having to fight as a matter of necessity for the existential existence of their country, their freedom, and uh, defending that from the human rights atrocities of the Russian army. That, and, and we know that, you know, Putin obviously is, you know, threatening to, you know, take away that, that freedom that they've... That they've had so it's you know it's understandable why people are having to fight but it's just such a needless situation and I think it is really shocking that the British government haven't done more to support the plight of refugees we still don't have um, the same levels of access for refugees and safe channels I know that it's something that's in development um, but even then I don't see the same assurances that other countries have been given giving refugees so far and it seems that more can be done and at a basic level, you know, the way in which the Russians have really disgustingly 
used rhetoric about denazifying Ukraine while simultaneously bombing Holocaust memorial sites. Just, you know, the hypocrisy and the contempt is just astounding. And then furthermore, the way in which this isn't a war by Russian people, this is a war by Putin and his army. And even then, you know, the, the loss of life on the Russian side, you know, that's many, many families that are being ripped apart because Putin is playing great power politics right now. And so it's just utter tragedy on all sides. And it, I think, you know, we shouldn't forget the human, you know, I think, I think what I find really quite scary is the way in which social media means that, you know, when you see a tank getting blown up or a helicopter getting shot down on either side, it's like all of this stuff gets condensed into sort of quick kind of bites that we can consume as media. But at the end of the day, these are lives being affected and the very real loss of life and the very real consequence of war, I think is something that I hope people remember and feel real um, disappointment and shame in. And we do more about preventing future conflict. And I really just pray that this conflict gets resolved peacefully and without any more um, escalation. I mean, when it kind of comes down to all this, you know, I, I've seen on social media various people almost celebrating uh, aircraft being knocked down, uh, shot down and various stuff. But, you know, we have to remember that even the right, you know, we talk about this isn't, you know, a, a conflict that Ukraine's won. This isn't a conflict that likely most Russians wanted, even though uh, there's uh, likely to be a fair amount of states um media that that's going around about this in terms of rhetoric on the russian side you know these are i don't think anyone should really be you know ever happy over these kind of things because at the end they they're you know this isn't their choice they're kind of being almost forced into this based on their own patriotism um but well well, actually what i do want to talk about something that kind of peter talked about earlier about you know uh international relations because at the end of the day, this kind of, I think the nation who will be most affected by this right now emotionally is probably some a country like Taiwan, which obviously um, it, it is a contested uh, area that, that China still will believe or uh, recognize as their own uh, part, part of China. And so I think that they're likely right now thinking, well, Ukraine were giving assurances by NATO of protection. And they they ha- clearly haven't got any in terms of um, militarily, although sanctions are sanctions. You can, you can kind of, I feel like there's a lot of frustration within Ukraine over the fact that, or even betrayal that NATO aren't getting involved and aren't protecting them in the same way that they initially, I guess, assumed it would be. So I think that we have to, think about right now how do we manage an international division um that we're currently going at the moment between the two hegemonies of of china and america and and the nations that associate with them including russia and ukraine and how we can almost ensure that territories such as hong kong and um, taiwan and various others like former Soviet states of Latvia and Estonia can, can really be, um, can feel secure, I guess. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a, 
and then sort of the the reaction from sort of the international sort of community has been very interesting, especially from China, um, who was amazingly uh, persuaded to abstain on the UN Security Council motion condemning uh, Russia, which could have had some uh, huge effects, of course. Uh, but Russia has the veto. Um, effectively, what this war has done, though, is it, it's pushed a lot of nations that strive to maintain that neutrality between Russia and between the West into the arms of Western uh, sort of organisations, sort of the NATO, uh, the EU, uh, even Switzerland has taken a stance, which is, if anyone knows their history and just knows anything about Switzerland, that is huge. The fact Sweden has taken a stance as well is huge as, in its right itself. And Finland. Uh, effectively, Putin has done the exact opposite of what he wanted to do here. He has pushed people to be more accepting of NATO. Um, I think for the first time in history, Finnish people are in the majority. They want to join NATO. Um, whereas previously it had always been a majority of people. Um, places like uh, Ukraine has applied for EU membership during this war, which is amazing, and the EU has said they want to fast-track them. Moldova, I think, has recently applied. Georgia has applied. Uh, Finland's considering NATO membership. Um, Georgia is still waiting for it. Ukraine obviously still wants it. Um, and I suppose... Uh, at the end of the day, Putin, I mean, Putin has already failed in that in that sort of sense. Even um, it's it's clear that he won't be able to hold Ukraine, in my opinion. Um, if you look at it, um, his troops would be over, his troops have just spread too thin from resistance. Um, his clearly their supply lines are not effective. Um, and as it gets later into the year, if, once it gets into winter as well. Um, certainly the Russian army will will certainly be bogged down a bit more if it lasts that long. Um, Zelensky has turned himself into a war hero and stuff. And this is all obviously on Putin's false basis and terrible claims about history, which uh, as a historian has really hurt my heart. Um, the, the, sort of the lies and stuff he made up about uh, Ukraine only being invented during the Soviet Union and stuff. Um, I suppose the talk of the EU brings us nicely on to uh, our next topic, which was requested by uh, a couple of people over on Twitter, um, which was the Northern Ireland Protocol um, and what's going on in Northern Ireland and stuff. Um, I am not clued up on this. I've never really understood the protocol. Um, I mean, who has? I don't even think the people who agree to it understand the protocol, really. Um, but... Um, Obviously, we want to talk about uh, in in in, a, in aims to get people more involved and stuff. We obviously want to hear what you want to hear and stuff. So we'll be asking that question again before other podcasts and stuff. So always keep an eye out if you want to recommend a topic for us to talk about. So we're going to talk about Northern Ireland. Um, I know nothing about this. Peter, I think, is going to be our man on this. He seemed very excited when we mentioned it. Um, so I will hand over to Peter to talk talk us through Northern Ireland and the Northern Irish Protocol. Yeah, so in essence, uh, the dilemma facing uh, Northern Ireland in terms of the Northern Ireland Protocol is basically the fact that obviously Northern Ireland is a member of the United Kingdom, uh, but it also has uh, the Good Friday Agreement and 
lots of um, agreements in place that supports it having a strong relationship with the Republic of Ireland. And obviously I won't get into all the nitty gritty of the, the troubles and the, the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of the tension over, over that, uh, over Northern Ireland and, and, you know, the, uh, <laughs> the complications of that. But in essence, the issue is that uh, when, when the United Kingdom left the European Union, obviously it left pretty much all the trade deals that had been agreed to and, and especially the regulatory frameworks and the issue that that's created is that when the UK trades with the European Union, it means there's got to be all these extra checks, all these extra bits of paperwork, extra processing of the goods, uh, you know, all these quite bureaucratic procedures that when we were in the European Union, we didn't need because in essence, it was one massive market between the 28 member states of the European Union. But because the UK left that, suddenly we've put up a, a barrier when it comes to our trade. Now, the issue, of course, is that Northern Ireland, as a member of the UK, was potentially going to have to also put up a trade barrier between it and the rest of the European Union. Now, of course, the Republic of Ireland is a member of the EU. And so that would have meant, in essence, a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland on the issue of trade, which obviously there exists, um, you know, a... Uh, you know, a literal political border, if you, sorry, not literal, you know, there exists a political border between the North and the South, but, you know, because of the Good Friday Agreement and the nature of, um, you know, a, a sizable proportion of people feeling like they're part of the rest of Ireland, it's always been an issue that's kind of been a grey area. And while Northern Ireland was a member of the European Union through its membership of the UK, it meant that in essence, there was no barrier between North and South when it came to things like trade. And it just meant there was real access and, and flow of goods and, you know, very little contentiousness when it came to the political scene, because for unionists, they were still a member of the United Kingdom. And for nationalists, there was very little to physically limit them from accessing the South. So with Brexit, suddenly comes along this issue of trade. And what the British government ended up doing was deciding that because the risks attached with creating a trade border between the North and the South or Northern Ireland and Republic of Ireland, uh, that it would actually be more feasible for them instead to have a situation where goods going from the rest of the UK to Northern Ireland get checked. And then when the Northern Irish goods go to the Republic, there's no barriers in place. But of course, you have to have these checks at some point. And therefore, the checks being from the UK to Northern Ireland means that many unionists feel sidelined because, in essence, they're not a part of the bigger UK market. They're treated differently. So when you send goods across from, I don't know, somewhere in Scotland to Belfast, you know, those goods will get checked in Northern Ireland, even though they're a part of the same country. And so for many unionists, they're feeling quite sidelined, marginalised, uh, because they don't feel like they've got the same access to the United Kingdom, the same membership of the United Kingdom, despite politically Northern Ireland still remaining a member of the Union. And therefore, this has become a really big issue for unionists. So, you know, if you go across to Northern Ireland, I was there a couple of months ago, and, you know, they had massive banners in the unionist areas about no to the Irish sea border. You know, it's a really big issue. And at the moment, the DUP seem to be 
very divided and very unsure on how to proceed. So obviously they're the largest party in Northern Ireland and also unionists. But naturally, many unionists are blaming them for the failure to resolve the issue of the Irish sea border and the goods checks, because obviously the DUP had a confidence and supply agreement with the Conservative Party. They were largely responsible for encouraging the no-deal Brexit that has led to this situation directly. And so for a lot of unionists, this has created an issue where the main party that represents them seems to have not managed to actually deliver a good deal for unionists in Northern Ireland, quite the contrary. And it's led to a position where you've had DUP MP Sammy Wilson getting shouted off a stage at a unionist rally just a couple of weeks ago. And the leader of the more hardline unionist, traditional unionist voice, Jim Alistair, had to defend him from this crowd of unionists because Sammy Wilson was, you know, getting all this blame and anger and it's understandable. So the sentiment is really quite hostile uh, uh, to the DUP and they're having to navigate this situation very carefully. It's led to the resignation of First Minister Paul Given and obviously it caused a lot of complications for Edwin Poots when he was leader of the DUP and had appointed Paul Given as First Minister. Uh, uh, you know, this was still a prevailing issue back then and it, and it seems to just be continuing without any um, site of resolution. For nationalists, obviously, it's more complex. Many nationalists were pro-European. Uh, you did tend to have the more nationalist-leaning areas voting to remain in the European Union, whereas more unionist areas tended to vote leave. Overall, Northern Ireland voted to remain 55% to 45%. But it was interesting that you had a, a slight unionist-nationalist divide on the issue of Brexit. And so there seems to be a certain irony to it that unionists asked for Brexit, or certainly the DUP did and many of the areas did, but then in delivering Brexit, it seems to have actually sidelined their place in the United Kingdom. So it's a very complex issue that's caused a lot of divide. And we've got the Northern Ireland Assembly election coming up in just a couple of months, I think. So this is going to be an issue that will dominate the election there with the more hardline TUV condemning it. I mean, all the unionist parties are against the protocol uh, because they they claim it creates a sea border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. But at the moment, it seems to be that although the DUP are responsible, they're trying to distance themselves from the issue. And so that's the issue for voters at the election is who will they blame for these issues? Can the unionist community, uh, you know, um, resolve its grievances or will it not forgive the DUP? What will it do? And then obviously on the other side, nationalists are still continuing to um, you know, coalesce around the uh, traditional nationalist parties. There doesn't seem to be much shift in the polling for the parties there, whereas with unionist parties, the polling is massively shifted. And then in the middle, you've got the Alliance Party, who are sort of a, uh, a party in the middle when it comes to the issue of the constitution and the issue of even economics, they're very much a, a centrist, non-sectarian liberal party. Um, and I can't actually remember um, exactly how they've navigated the issue, but you seem to have a situation by which there's still a lot of division and no one's really sure how it's going to resolve. So it's all to play for and we'll see how it plays out in the election. Thank you very much, but I don't think any of us I mean, I certainly couldn't have said anything like that. Um, I just, I just, I suppose, I mean, 
we don't really have much to say. Peter's pretty much said everything that's going on there. Um, I suppose a, a, a general wider question that I suppose someone else could chip into, Peter himself, I imagine, will will have a, an answer for this or will possibly be marked for. In the long run, what is the sort of the solution to this then? So is it is it is it um, closer relations with the uh, EU to remove this altogether? Is this uh, a hard border in Northern Ireland? Is it reaffirming the hard border in the Irish Sea? Or is it Irish reunification? What 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 do we think is sort of the the end goal here in the long run? What what is going to happen with Northern Ireland? What is going to happen with this border? Yeah. So the interesting thing is, sorry, I've just I've just got the uh, the, the information up that I was looking for. So uh, the cross community parties like the Alliance Party and the Green Party, they have defended the protocol because they claim it protects the Good Friday Agreement, which. That has been the main sort of crux of it so far is the issue of the Good Friday Agreement. And obviously that's meant peace for the last 25 years and a resolution to obviously the previous conflicts that had really um, so deeply affected uh, Northern Ireland and its divisions. Um, But then for the more nationalist parties, obviously the end goal will always be Irish reunification anyway. So this situation doesn't really help unionists. It only sort of undermines the nature of Northern Ireland's membership in terms of its trade, but also politically, the fact that the Conservative Party, a party that has and Unionist Party in its title, didn't properly engage with Unionist community or certainly isn't seen to be engaging properly with Unionist community. The fact that in pursuing its course of Brexit, it has alienated Unionists to Northern Ireland to me suggests that Northern Ireland is at a bit of a crossroads in terms of its future when one of the main parties of unionism that governs the country supposedly doesn't even fully affirm one of the nations of the United Kingdom. That to me suggests there really is a lot of, you know, potential for a big political fallout. And it's worth noting that fallout in Northern Ireland doesn't just mean messy elections, it can lead to violence on the streets. And so that will be the main worry of a lot of voters and a lot of people, especially the younger generation don't necessarily remember what it was like growing up under the troubles. And you've seen in response to the protocol, you know, buses being burnt by young loyalists and increase in tensions and, you know, the police very uh, very closely monitoring the situation. And on the um, Republican side as well, you've had obviously threats that if there was a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic, the potential for more tension and even violence uh, from from the Republican side. So you've got the real risk of extremes rising as a result. And, you know, the situation is one that is going to have to be dealt with very delicately and very sensitively. But at the end of the day, Northern Ireland is still divided. And so what it's going to take is politicians acting maturely and with concern for everyone and unfortunately, some of the rhetoric does seem to be quite alienating in nature. So it really will fall on the leadership, the political leadership to come together and try and find a way forward. And for the British government to take seriously the concerns of people in Northern Ireland from both sides, uh, which so far Boris Johnson doesn't seem to really care that much about Northern Ireland, full stop. So I I obviously, I hope the British government takes more seriously and also the Irish uh, government and, and the European Union. So what you've seen is the European Union not really budging because they claim that 
this protocol is a direct result of what the British government wanted. Um, you know, it's kind of like a case of have your cake and eat it. Uh, but it's a situation that has the potential for real extremes and even violence to rise. So I would really hope that um, more caution can be taken when approaching this issue. And hopefully we'll see some sort of resolution that keeps people happy and brings people together. Well, I mean, I'm not going to be able to go into, I'm going to speak for both actually me and Zoe here. I don't think we're going to be able to go into as much detail as Peter has, because I mean, Peter obviously is very well researched and uh, you know, I said the majority of people here hosting this podcast aren't. Um, and obviously that lands us to a bit of a disadvantage. But what I think is a really interesting thing is uh, about, you know, the, the obviously the, the extent of negotiations that happened with this deal would of Theresa May's two year transition period and a, a backstop been better and, and sort of reduced the issues. And um which is, you know, poss- highly possible. But I think going forward, the, the, there's definitely a divide on the union side. But as many people um, have kind of spoken to me about this who are a lot more educated on this than uh, myself, that the TUV, though, have been um, h- higher in the polls, you know, this apparently usually happens and they don't kind of live up to it when it comes to the election. I think that, Stormont has kind of been very um, touch and go. It hasn't, I don't think, been as successful as many people would have wanted it to be, leading to um, the national government having to take over from it, which brings interesting questions because if Sinn Féin do end up um, winning that election as the the primary party and then the DUP, let's say, for example, or the secondary party, what relations between Northern Ireland, the UK government will be, and how people accept in Northern Ireland that government. And because of that, I can almost, and I, 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 I would like to, you know, caveat again saying that I'm not an expert and this, you know, isn't the most educated opinion, but it could be possible that unionist votes simply to not have Sinn Féin as their primary party in Stormont um, kind of go, when I say primary, I mean like the the winners, but you know, obviously, there's a it's a different system where it's kind of more clustered around two parties in government. Um, but you, you know, it could be something where TUV people who are polling towards them may just land back to the DUP to stop that. I think I think the point that Aaron picks up on there is actually really important. So although the DUP are getting a lot of um, hostility for their role in the Northern Ireland Protocol, and obviously have had a lot of division internally. At the end of the day, for a lot of unionists, the risk of a Sinn Féin first minister might be too great. And therefore, a lot of voters who consider lending their vote to the Ulster Unionists or the TUV as a protest against the DUP might coalesce around the DUP again. And actually, it's also worth noting that the first minister position is based on seats. Uh, So you had a situation in 1998 in the first assembly election where the SDLP actually won the most votes, but didn't win the most seats. And therefore the unionists were able to retain the position of first minister. Um, And you could have a situation like that again, where Sinn Féin somehow edge it with the vote share, or even, you know, really try and push to win the most seats, but actually vote as last minute switch. Because at the end of the day, there is still such a tension between the two communities, nationalist and unionist, that the risk of 
the unionists handing a sort of political authority, even though technically first minister and deputy first minister are actually equal heads of government in Northern Ireland. Obviously, first minister has a more sort of symbolic um, presiding role. Um, so it means the election is still all to play for. And actually, there's still quite a bit of time for the DUP to repair its image with unionists, even if that is just about the threat of Sinn Féin. So it's all to play for. And we'll be watching these polls and the election very closely. Yeah. Yes, um, it's definitely going to be one to monitor by the sounds of it. Um, I'm, I'm definitely going to have to do some reading on it and perhaps next time we have to talk about it. Uh, I'll be able to say a bit more. But Peter's done a fabulous job there of running us through everything that's gone on with uh, Northern Ireland and this um, protocol. So thank you very much, Peter. Um, quickly, I am, I, am, I am cautious. We don't want to drag this on for too long. Uh, I'm sure as much as you all love listening to us, um, it can be a bit boring. Um, just quickly, we wanted to talk about the sort of the cost of living crisis, um, something that obviously affects us all as students who are living away from home. You have to pay our own bills. You have to do shopping. We have to go out. Not, I don't think any of us drive, but if we had cars and stuff, petrol's obviously through the roof at the moment. Um, and me and Zoe were saying before, biggest issue, Tesco meal deals, £3.50 without a club card now. This is, I think, sort of the... Uh, it's like the world's gone mad. Um, the way I used to keep uh, an eye on inflation and the cost of living was uh, the price of a Freddo. And I've not seen how much they are at the moment, but uh, but I feel like if I saw the price of a Freddo at the moment, I'd probably have a heart attack. Um, obviously, what what the British government are doing for sort of cost of living in terms of energy bills, um, Zoe's just said in the chat that they are a pound. I really hope that's not true. It, no, what's it called? Uh, I live in Newcastle. I'm at Newcastle Uni. And Greg's sausage rolls are now £1.5. Now, let me tell you, they're meant to be a pound. I'm unimpressed. Same with Cadbury's. Cadbury's chocolate's a pound a pack, right? Everyone who's listening, you've all been in shops. We've all paid a pound for it. Now, it's going through roof. I'm well unimpressed. I reckon well, every, week, every week I go shopping and I send a picture of the chocolate section to Aaron and complain about the prices. What I'm saying is, as someone who's been forced to eat gluten-free the majority of their life, ha, 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 you can kiss my tears. <laughs> as, as, long as, as long as Freddo is still like 30p under, you know? I remember what Bro, that I, I, I don't even think I can eat Freddo, so stop complaining. Shut you up. can't eat Cadbury's chocolate. I don't know how you get through the day. Sure. You, you know, at the end of the day, welcome, welcome, welcome to my existence of the last, I don't know, 20 years. Come on, let's, just, let's just, yeah, well, I'll let Pete jump in and then we'll go back to it. I'll just finish what my thought was. Just just a really quick point. Like, I'm, I, I'm not going to talk too much about this issue, but um, just like what I find interesting as well is on top of all these costs of living things, uh, the government very sneakily has... Uh, basically taxed students even more. They've changed the student loan repayment threshold, which in practice, um, in fact, it's that they haven't changed it. And obviously with inflation, um, it basically means that students are paying hundreds and hundreds of pounds more each year. And then on top of that, they restructured the um, uh, some of the, uh, the length of time and they tweaked various other parts of it. And in practice, what it means is that richer earners will not pay as much and lower earners will pay tens of thousands of pounds more over the course of the many decades that we repay our, our loan. So the government have very sneakily basically decided to incorporate a secret student tax into these cost of living 
uh, you know, things like the national insurance rise and obviously the tax brackets changing, they're also penalising students more. And I find it interesting that there's been very little about that publicly, uh, but it just seems like everything's piling on at the moment. Uh, so it's a real kind of uh, crossroads for the country with all these extra costs. I mean, at, yeah. the, at the end of the day, when, when it comes to that bit, you know, it was they, what they've done is they reverted it back to what it was because it was only a couple of years ago that they said the economy. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I did it. It was twenty one thousand. Then they upped it to the threshold to twenty five thousand because the economy was doing well. So they put it back down. I don't, you know, at the end of the day, the government has, has expended a substantial amount of money and is effectively giving a substantive amount of the population. A decent amount of money, you know. What, what do you expect? What, what do you expect is going to happen? They, they need um, the money back. Thankfully, uh, um, um, that's that issue. I'm, I'm not very clear up on like who it affects and stuff. I'm, it's a bit confusing the moment because I, I don't think it affects Aaron's got his. Aaron is obviously our OAP, so he's a he's a post. He's a post. Yeah, I, 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 you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, I, I was, um, yeah. I was, you know, learning about university tuition and all this whilst these guys were still doing their GCSEs. <laughs> I like to think, I like to think that, you know, I've, I've got more of a historical basis to understand the system. You know, all these people coming in thinking, oh, 25 grand threshold. That's cool. I was still there when they said it was 21 grand. So, you know. Um, um, so yeah, so obviously he his opinions will be a bit different too. Obviously, uh, I think we're all second year undergraduates at the moment, if I'm correct. Yeah, because um, I've got a few friends who are obviously first years because they deferred because of COVID and stuff. Um, so I'm, it's, I'm it's on... worth it, it, it's worth noting that the Mirror have noted that this chi- this change to the uh, the threshold and the uh, length of the loans, etc is going to cost literally tens of thousands of pounds more for a huge amount of earners. And actually it is, if you look at the graphs, um, I, I'll, I'll try and find it um, for Aaron afterwards, but there was a graph that was showing the uh, deviations, the different um, uh, uh, rates of earners and, and the way in which, how much they repay um, is factored in and things. And actually it disproportionately benefits higher earners. These changes, they'll pay back less and lower earners will pay back more because in effect, what they're doing is they're stretching out the amount of time it takes to repay. And they're also obviously tweaking um, various other elements of it. And actually this is hitting, it's basically an extra tax. And I've actually, you know, I've seen people on the left and the right complaining. I've seen some of my conservative friends complaining about it. I've seen my friends in the Labour Party complaining about it. It seems to be an issue that doesn't make much practical sense, uh, but nevertheless, it's being pursued. Uh, yeah, um, as, as I think, I think this is um, obviously. Um, let me think. I think this only affects students from twenty, the twenty twenty two, twenty three cohort and onwards. I might be wrong on that. Um, I don't think. Thankfully, I don't think it affects us due to us obviously entering our contracts with student finance and stuff at different t- uh, earlier points. Um, that's how I, it's very confusing. I remember um, Martin Martin Lewis was tweeting about it and I still didn't understand it. And if he can't explain something to do with money, then I'll like make it understandable for, and it's obviously a bit, um, um, obviously it's a bit confusing. So um, anyhow, 
Uh, as I was saying before, the government is obviously giving people, I think it was like 250 quid or something for their gas bills that are going through the roof, whereas uh, other countries are obviously, France has capped them and um, we've seen sort of record levels of profit for like British gas. And so, so the question is, if they're making all this money, why are our bills going up sort of thing? Uh, and obviously with everything that's happening in Russia, the fact that we, we don't want to be using Russian gas um, is going to cause even more issues. Um, but I think the main point to take away from this little bit on cost of living is that we are all fuming about the price of a Tesco meal deal. £3.50. They didn't. They could have done it in stages. They could have started off £3.25, then gone to £3.50. You know, maybe that eased us in. Nope. Whole half a pound up. Um, so we will leave it there for today. Um, I just I wanted think- to tell everyone, get a club card. Get a club yeah. card. Ivan Morrison's card saves money. Get a club card. Club cards, they are free. Um, they're free and they save you money I mean I'm aware that they only have them so Tesco can track what you're buying but it's saving you money get a club card not paid for by Tesco no one's paying me if only no as you see we're we're very critical of Tesco as well but they are free so invest in a club card because everything's going to go up Um, so uh, I hope you really enjoyed today Um, I don't think I can say Aaron was shaking his head before I don't think I can say who our next planned interview is but it's exciting it's exciting. It's like it, we're very excited. We're very excited because it's a, uh, you know, we had an assembly member. Next step up, think about it logically. Don't be mean to Zach here. I'm not being mean to Zach, but I'm saying, you know, assembly member. Zach Polanski. I'm assembly member. What's what's the next level? Of, think think about that, and that that gives you a bit of a hint to. It isn't what, Sadiq Khan. I'll tell you that for free. It's, it's, it's not, not Sadiq, Sadiq Khan. Not Sadiq Khan. Um, or Andy Burnham. It's or not, any it's, of the other mayors. You think of someone who's like an assembly. Anyway, I shall stop teasing you. Um, <laughs> and I shall say, hopefully, we will. I will, when we've confirmed it, uh, I'll put out a little tweet to get you all excited. Um, but um, that has been uh, this month in politics for February. Obviously, there's been a lot to, lot to cover. Uh, it's been a very heavy month. Um, so I'm glad we were able to sort of line up at the end with a bit of a Tesco meal deal. Uh, sort of, um, I want to say banter, but that makes me sound old. And the kids still, the ki- kids. Slightly this, lighter subject of us being yeah. sad about meal deal as opposed to the prospect of nuclear war. We've kind of started yeah. with the heavy hitting. Well, we started with Birmingham, and then oh, we went to we went to bleak as f- <laughs> sorry, I need to stop swearing. And then we came back down to meal Northern deals. Ireland and then meal deals. Um, so well, thank you for always- coming on this journey with us. Yes. So as always, you can check out our social medias. Our Twitter is obviously at capital P N D E R politics. So that's Punda politics. Um, you can find all our personal socials. There. You can find mine, Zoe's, Aaron's and Peter's. Uh, you can email us at pondering politics uh, one, two. Oh, no, it's just it's just pondering politics at gmail.com. How do I, how I got that wrong? I don't know. I set up that email. Um so you can email us there with any queries, any comments, if you don't want to, obviously, put it on Twitter. Um, if you're a personal friend of ours and you want to send us hate mail, go hate for mail. it. Oh, he was very sad the other day when we didn't have any any hate, quote-unquote, hate mail. So uh, feel free. It might it might cheer, cheer up a bit. So um, we'll leave it there today. We have been your host, as always, Jack, Zoe, Aaron and Peter. And we wish you all the best. <laughs>